Winners of three straight games, the Seahawks are one of the hottest teams in the entire NFL. Where do they stand in the NFC playoff race after eight weeks? We're going to be breaking it all down on our Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for Tell the Truth Tuesday, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. As always, thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're from London, Ireland, Japan, Antarctica, wherever you're at, thanks for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. Jam-packed Tuesday episode coming your way, even though the Seahawks were pretty quiet heading into today's trade deadline. A lot of activity around the league. We'll be diving into why the Seahawks weren't one of those teams that made any bold moves. Plus, we're going to take a look at the NFC West and the NFC standings, where the Seahawks stand in both after three consecutive wins. And tell the truth Tuesday, our last chance to get in some takeaways, maybe a few hot takes coming out of Sunday's win over the Giants. This episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than their Prize Picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on your entry. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code locked on. That's prizepicks.com, promo code locked on. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. One of the hottest teams in the NFL, the Seahawks, are riding a three-game winning streak, their most impressive win to date coming on Sunday against the previously 6-1 New York Giants at Lumen Field. And though it's still early, Rob, we are getting to the point of the season where the contenders start to separate themselves from the pretenders. And certainly the Seahawks took a major step forward toward contender status by beating the Giants, a very solid, well-coached football team on Sunday. And sure enough, here we are. The Seahawks are not just in first place in the NFC West right now. They would have the number three seed if the playoffs started today. Who would have thought after eight weeks that the Seahawks would be in that position? Maybe the only person that thought they'd be here is Pete Carroll. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as you said, eight weeks into the season um, and they are in first place, uh, you know, would be hosting a, a playoff game as a divisional winner. Um, you know, so to me, that that's that's pretty exciting stuff here. Uh, you know, I, I really think that it is a, a testament, as we talked about yesterday, to Pete Carroll and John Schneider. Certainly, Geno Smith deserves a, a great deal of credit as well. Um, but you just look at that NFC playoff picture. Those of you watching on YouTube, Philadelphia Eagles have number one seed, the Minnesota Vikings, number two, Seattle at three, Atlanta Falcons at the four seed, Dallas Cowboys, New York Giants, San Francisco 49ers wrapping up the seven seeds. It would be a Giants at Seattle uh, rematch um, should the if the playoffs were to start right now. And obviously, I think that the way that the Seahawks basically dismantled New York, I think that Seahawks fans have got to be pretty excited about the possibility of another showdown with New York. I think you just look at this NFC right now. The Philadelphia Eagles have been dominant, and they're the only undefeated team left in the league. And yet you look at their schedule, they haven't really played very many good teams. So there still are some question marks out there about just how for real are the Philadelphia Eagles. And then behind them, I think the Vikings have been one of the quietly impressive teams in the NFL. They're not getting a lot of attention, but they're 6-1. and one. 
they've raced out to a huge lead in that division with the Packers being three and five and the other two teams really struggling in that division as well. They're running away with it, a real good chance for them to push the Eagles for that number one seed and the only buy now under the current playoff format. And the Falcons at four and four right now, they've been an overachieving team as well. They beat the Seahawks earlier this year at Loman Field. And they're in the weakest division in the NFL right now. But Tom Brady still may have a say there. Heck, the New Orleans Saints and the Carolina Panthers at 2-6. and six. The Panthers almost beat the Falcons in overtime this past weekend. They're playing a lot better under their new coach. So that division's still kind of open. But it feels like you are starting to see some of that separation here. And the Seahawks and 49ers are trying to create that separation in the NFC West. The Rams are still only a game out of being one of those wild card spots at three and four. The Cardinals are two games out at three and five. So this is a huge game coming up for them with the Seahawks returning to Arizona for their rematch in NFC West play. Keeping that in mind, let's look at the NFC West standings real quick. A roundup after week eight. Again, the Seahawks with that huge win over the Giants, staying in first place. But the 49ers are right behind them, and San Francisco has that tiebreaker, which – as we'll be mentioning here in a moment, that kind of weighs heavily on projections moving forward, beating the Seahawks in Santa Clara in week two. The Rams at three and four, game and a half out of first place right now. Still have not played any games against the Seahawks. Both those games going to be in the second half of the season. And the Cardinals playing trailing right now at three and five. This really does feel like a must-win situation for them. And how that impacts the playoff odds, Again, we use 538.com. Their projections, they're pretty darn good about these projections when we look at these year to year. Seattle right now, with that win, Rob, they went from a 34% chance of making the playoffs to 62%. That is a huge jump. And they're now projected to go 10-7, and seven, as are the 49ers, with that tiebreaker that they hold in the Seahawks. That's why they have the 73% make playoff percentage and 52% win division percentage, even though they're not in first place right now. Meanwhile, the Rams and Cardinals both under 7% chance to win the division. Again, that doesn't mean that they can't get it done. Those are two teams that have a lot of talent, but you've got to like where you're sitting if you're the Seahawks and the 49ers right now with the Rams struggling, dealing with injuries, and the Cardinals certainly underachieving this year. Really, the division just hasn't been quite as good as I think we anticipated, but Really, this is setting up to become a two-horse race, maybe three, if the Rams can find a way to protect Matthew Stafford and get their offense going a little bit. Certainly, they have a lot of talent still in that roster, but it feels like it's starting to become a two-horse race as we get into the second half of the season. Yeah, and, and Seattle could absolutely make it a two-horse race if they are able to, uh, you know, just basically finish the job um, and, and bury the Arizona Cardinals. Of course, that is their their opponent uh, this upcoming week. They already have the victory against them, as you already mentioned here. Um, and, and let's let's just face it. I mean, the Arizona Cardinals have not shown a great deal of heart uh, over the last couple of seasons. I, I hate to say it that way, but we saw this last year. The Arizona Cardinals were one of the biggest stories in the NFL. NFL a year ago, raced out to, a, I think it was a 6-0 and uh, start to their season before they really struggled down the stretch. And it often has been the case that Kyler Murray is kind of getting a little bit nicked up. I think that you could make an argument that the Cardinals might be able to get going a little bit because, of course, they got a superstar in DeAndre Hopkins who has returned for them this season. But still, the fact that they are coming off of a loss against the Minnesota Vikings team, that is a good one, but still, 
Arizona just has not shown a great deal of resiliency uh, throughout the Cliff Kingsbury era as head coach. So if Seattle is in fact able to uh, to finish Arizona this weekend, then it really does feel like it could be that two horse race. And it, it does feel a little bit presumptuous to just basically say that the Los Angeles Rams are out of it. Obviously, they're the Super Bowl defending Super Bowl champions. But at the same time, that was the risk that the Los Angeles Rams uh, made in that they basically put all of their eggs in a basket of a couple of superstar players. We know the superstar players, but when those those players like Cooper Cup, for example, start to struggle a little bit with injuries, the Rams just do not have the depth. They've got some superstar players, and then they've, they've got a lot of guys who are not necessarily truly NFL caliber starters. And so there's a lot of holes in that team. To me, it's the Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers. Seattle, of course, as you said, lost in Santa Clara, but Seattle gets the opportunity to pay back a little bit later. So to me, this does feel like a two-horse race right now. Again, it's critical that Seattle finishes the deal this weekend. Yeah, and health, as you just mentioned, that is always one of the biggest, if not the biggest, keys to having sustained success in the NFL. The Rams were very healthy a year ago, and that helped them win the Super Bowl. It has not been the case for them this year. Seattle's hoping that they can avoid any more major injuries. They already lost Jamal Adams in week one. They've had a few other guys get nicked up, but they're hoping they can avoid that. And that will certainly help their chances of continuing to surprise and winning this division. All right, coming up next here on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks, I know a lot of our listeners were hoping, you know, that maybe there'd be a trade to talk about, but John Schneider and company, they decided to sit pat today before the 1 p.m. deadline. We're going to discuss why that ended up being the case and look at a couple moves the Seahawks did make today, removing one of their former starters from the secondary by waving him and also making a few switcheroos on the practice squad. We'll get to those moves coming up next here on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. We're halfway through the NFL season, and with Week 9 on tap, I've got Aaron Rodgers waking up with three touchdown passes against the lowly Lions, and Patrick Mahomes dicing up the Titans for 350 passing yards. Those might not seem like bold leaps, but with prize picks, it's easy to play. Daily fantasy and put those entries to the test. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. There's no competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. Prize picks offers projections in any sports you watch, whether it's the NFL, NBA, MLB, PGA, college football, NASCAR, even MMA. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Safe and fast withdrawals and currently operational in over 30 states as well as Canada. Download the Price Picks app or go to pricepicks.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code Locked On. If you deposit $100, Price Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Price Picks will give you $50. Don't forget to enter the promo code Locked On at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. You're listening to Tell the Truth Tuesday here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime. Rob Rang. We appreciate all the 12s out there that make Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We also appreciate our first-time listeners. Hope you'll be coming back and enjoy today's episode. Let's get to the trade deadline. The deadline coming and passing today at 1 p.m. Pacific time. And I know a lot of 12s out there were sitting on the edge of their seat hoping that John Schneider would pull one of his patented moves like he did in 2019 trading for Quandre Diggs. In 2020, trading for Carlos Dunlap. But for the second straight season, as you and I both projected was going to happen yesterday, the Seahawks did not make 
any trades before the deadline sitting pat. And really, Rob, as we talked about yesterday, this was pretty predictable, even though the Seahawks are in first place at five and three, and they have reasons to maybe consider adding another player or two to their team. They're also a very young team and they don't have a lot of cap space. And John Schneider really likes his draft picks that he's got going into next season. Doesn't, doesn't want to give those away. So this really didn't, it wasn't something that was unexpected. I actually would have been really surprised if they would have added any players before the deadline. And they weren't able to move Sidney Jones either, which led to the only move that they made today. Yeah, they wound up waving Sidney Jones, and I think that this is a reflection based on, you know, a, a reflection of the fact that Seattle is young, as you just mentioned, Corbin. They are hot right now with three consecutive victories, including against a divisional opponent in Arizona. Um, you know, and I think that they feel like they they have a pretty solid squad here. Um, you know, sure, if you were able to get a a quality veteran on the cheap, the way that Seattle was able essentially to fleece Detroit a couple of years ago with Quandre Diggs in Cincinnati with, with Carlos Dunlap, then absolutely that would have made some sense. But um, without those types of deals in place, I mean, you, you saw some big names get moved. Uh, TJ Hawkinson, former first round pick, wound up going from Detroit to Minnesota, a rare kind of interdivisional move. But the Minnesota Vikings paid a pretty heavy price for him. You saw Chase Claypool, a wide receiver that we kind of talked about uh, yesterday, also wound up getting trained, went from the Pittsburgh Steelers to the Chicago Bears. There were some moves made. There were actually 10 moves made today, Corbin. So there were plenty of moves being made, but not very many of them were happening in the NFC West division. And again, I think that the biggest reason why is because Seattle really likes their youth, really likes their draft picks, as you mentioned. Um, and then again, they are playing pretty good football right now. So with Sidney Jones, I think that it's it's disappointing in a lot of ways because this is a former local University of Washington kind of player. Um, this is a starting caliber defensive back, but he just didn't. I, I think that really what this comes down to is this is Seattle showing a lot of respect to Sidney Jones and, and basically saying, look, we, we know that you are a good player. We know that you can play. We also know that you are not likely to have any type of real consistent playing time for our franchise. Tariq Woolen has been an absolute superstar from the jump. Kobe Bryant is playing really good football. Mike Jackson stole this job. I mean, not that I don't, I don't want to suggest that he didn't earn it. He absolutely did earn it, but he has taken it away. And then, oh, by the way, Trey Brown is coming back here. You got Artie Burns, who you brought in as well. There just wasn't going to be any type of opportunity for Sidney Jones. So I think that by releasing Sidney Jones, some people are going to suggest this was a loss for the Seahawks. I disagree. I think there's an awful lot of veterans who are going to on, on Seattle's roster currently who are going to see this as the classy move for the Seahawks to allow this player to be able to sign somewhere else. And he will sign somewhere else. I, I know for a fact that there were some NFL teams out there who had some interest in Sidney Jones. They just weren't willing to give up the draft picks necessary to allow Seattle to, to you know, make that trade. So again, I think that rather than suggest that this was a loss for Seattle, I think this is kind of doubling down on the fact that the Seahawks feel pretty darn good about where their secondary is and pretty darn good about the rest of their franchise as well. Yeah, and you know that this had to be difficult for Pete Carroll and the coaching staff because I think Pete Carroll has a lot of respect for Sidney Jones, and, and they are showing that. John Schneider and Pete Carroll are showing that respect you just mentioned by giving him a chance to become a free agent. And, of course, he's got to clear waivers first. Somebody could claim him off waivers with him not having a big contract. But 
It's giving him an opportunity to land somewhere that he's going to play. He was not going to play here unless several guys got hurt. I think Artie Burns, even with his injury issues he's had this year, I think Artie Burns is a player that they favor because of Sean Desai being one of their assistant coaches and being familiar with him. And so Artie Burns was ahead of him. They're going to get Trey Brown back possibly this week. He might be on the 53-man roster when they go to Arizona this weekend. He returned to practice last week. You had to open up a roster spot for him. And so there just isn't a spot for Sidney Jones to play. And I don't think that he lost this job as much as he just simply got beat out by better players. Tariq Woolen is bigger. He's faster. He's just a better football player. And on the other side, Mike Jackson had a hell of a training camp. We talked about him all of August throughout camp. We talked about this player tons. And he earned that opportunities, as you mentioned. He deserved that chance. He won that job outright. And Sidney Jones missing some time with a concussion did not help his cause either. Mike Jackson was out there on the field getting those reps and taking full advantage of them. So all along, this has been a situation where I think there have been some minor injuries in there. But at the same time, the Seahawks, they were trying to find ways to get Sidney Jones in the field a little bit so they could try to improve his trade value more so than – they felt they needed to rotate him with Mike Jackson. This has been Mike Jackson's job all along. Now, maybe Trey Brown will change that, but if Mike Jackson plays the way he did on Sunday against the Giants, good luck to Trey Brown getting that job back. So they've got a really good situation there, a good problem to have with the corner depth they have. And, and Sidney Jones was just the odd man out in that group, and he's a player on a one-year contract. they got a lot of guys that are on rookie deals that are going to be here for at least three or four years. There's just not a spot there for him to play. So I hope that he lands on his feet, ends up somewhere right away. I expect he's going to land somewhere that he can get on the field and play meaningful snaps on defense. He just wasn't going to get that chance now in Seattle. As far as other trade possibilities, from what I was told today, uh, there weren't really any serious conversations out there. Not that John Schneider wasn't looking into things, because we know he never leaves a stone unturned, but they're just – you know, you look at what teams were getting. I mean, the Broncos got a first-round pick for Bradley Chubb going to the Dolphins. And then the Bears, they made the trade with the Steelers to bring in Chase Claypool, and they traded away a second-round pick for him. Like, the price tag for some of these players was higher than I expected it was going to be going into the deadline. I think part of that's because there's a lot of teams that are still hanging around in the in the playoff race. And they're not just going to give away players. And some teams were willing to take those gambles and give up draft picks. John Schneider was not going to trade away first and second round picks going into next year's draft. Just not going to do that. And I think the other thing that's really an underrated storyline here, the Seahawks have reinforcements coming back. It's not just Trey Brown. That's going to help their secondary. But Alton Robinson is going to be back in the next couple weeks from injured reserve. Daryl Johnson has a chance to return in a few weeks as well. So they've got some really solid football players that already know their system that are going to be available on defense in the next couple of weeks for them to activate if they wish. They need a roster spot for Bruce Irvin, too. He only has one practice squad elevation left per league rules, and you know they're going to get him on the 53-man roster with the way he's playing his leadership. So they didn't really have any reason to make a deal here unless they were blown away with a chance to get an inside linebacker or a position like that. There wasn't anything out there that was going to pique John Schneider's interest for the compensation that he was willing to pay. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, there, there just were some teams out there who were, you know, gambling high draft picks for players who have obviously struggled um, yeah. with with the teams that that initially selected them. You know, I, I wonder if uh, if Austin Blythe had been healthy enough to play this entire game and struggled as much against the Giants throughout the entire game as he did in the early first quarter before he went down with an injury. I wonder if Cody Barton uh, did not have one of his better performances uh, against the New York Giants, then maybe Seattle would have been a little bit more aggressive in trying to find another center, another inside linebacker. But again, I thought that Barton played pretty well. I thought that Blythe kind of leveled his play out, and certainly Kyle Fuller played a pretty solid game himself. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more here in just a few more minutes. But still, I think that, that Seattle basically said, who on the market can we possibly get for a day three selection that is actually better than what we already have on the field. They know our team. They fit in with our locker room. If they don't have something that's obvious, then why even mess with the, the camaraderie that you are creating with this 3-0 and run here? First place team. So, I, again, I think it's kudos to the Seahawks. I think that this is a team that understands who they are, what they're trying to do, and rather than try to just create a public relations kind of a celebration here in the media – and just play the game that you've been playing because you're obviously proving a lot of people wrong already. You're playing good football, so just kind of continue to roll. And sometimes making a trade can mess with chemistry. So I think John Schneider, Pete Carroll, probably looking at right now like, hey, we just got our culture back where we want it. We've got a locker room where everybody's bought in. We're a young team. We want these draft picks next year. I mean, you just look at all the different reasons we've discussed and it didn't make a lot of sense for them to be aggressive at the deadline. Now, if somebody, if the Colts would have come to him and said, hey, second round pick, we'll give you to Forrest Buckner, you know John Schneider would have been listening then. But there wasn't that type of move to be made out there. And certainly he wasn't going to be calling George Payton of the Broncos and saying, hey, can we give you a third round pick for Bradley Chubb? Like, I don't even know that George Payton would answer the phone if John Schneider called right now with how things have gone with the Russell Wilson trade. So, there just wasn't that opportunity there. And even the rest of the NFC West, certainly the Rams were trying to get Brian Burns. They were still talking about burning some more first round picks the way they've been doing the last several years. And that never came to fruition. The 49ers just made a minor trade today. The Cardinals didn't do anything. So really the NFC West kept pretty quiet. The only big move made by anybody was getting McCaffrey a few weeks ago for the 49ers. And certainly that's going to make this division race between the Seahawks and the 49ers, maybe the Rams a lot more interesting in the second half, but I don't think fans should be upset that no moves were made. The Seahawks like where they're at. They got some good players coming back from injury in the next few weeks. They like their roster and they think they got a chance to keep this momentum going with the players. They currently have coming up next is tell the truth Tuesday. We're going to revisit Sunday's win over the giants. Maybe look at some big picture things as well. For the entire first eight weeks, it could be some takeaways, some hot takes. We're going to be dishing it all out for Tell the Truth Tuesday coming up next here on our latest episode of Locked On Seahawks. BetOnline.net is your number one source for all your pro and college football betting needs and sports info this season. Find all the latest football league developments, game matchups, news, and podcasts, including this year's opening week's games. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sporting and wagering information, including live betting, esports, and scores, the fastest and easiest way to check in all your favorite sports and events, whether it's baseball, MMA, boxing, or golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action. BetOnline, where the game starts. You're listening to Tell the Truth Tuesday here on the Locked on Seahawks podcast. It's your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, 
Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. And for your second listen, make sure to check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast, the biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. It's available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's Tell the Truth Tuesday, one of our favorite episodes of the week, that last chance to look back at the previous game. And it's always a lot more fun when you're talking about a big win like the Seahawks had over the Giants on Sunday, winning 27-13, to a dominant fourth quarter, beating the Giants at their own game. That's what the Giants have been doing all year to win all these close games, is winning in the fourth quarter, the Seahawks ended up taking that throne on Sunday at home. And now they're five and three. They're in first place in the NFC West, the third seed in the NFC. Let's get to our final takeaways, maybe some hot takes. It could be from Sunday's game. It could be looking at the first half or just more generalized topics. Let's start on the offensive side of the ball, Rob. For Tell the Truth Tuesday, what do you have to share with our audience? Well, I think the biggest thing that I saw is just the maturation of the play caller, Shane Waldron. <clears throat> I think we've talked to, we, we've levied so much praise on Pete Carroll, justifiably so, Geno Smith, justifiably so, the running game, whether it be Rashad Penny, whether it be Kenneth Walker III, all, again, justifiably. But I just the creativity of Shane Waldron, I, I touched upon this a little bit in yesterday's show, Corbin, just the, the fact that, that very first drive with the, you know, Austin Blythe has a, a perfectly fine snap. But at the same time, Geno Smith basically looks like it's way up above his head. It kind of gets the Giants a little bit kind of leaning. We see a, a low snap a little bit later. Um, but then when you see Geno Smith kind of walk towards the sideline as if he is confused, he's befuddled by Wink Martindale, one of the great defensive coordinators in all the NFL, it would make an awful lot of sense. And it's a direct snap to Kenneth Walker, scoots ahead for a first down. That that initial drive does not result in points for the Seahawks. But I can tell you a couple of drives later, I really love the play call by Shane Waldron um, and a, another kind of creative play where you got one of these, it's fourth and two down there at the goal line, rather than go for a field goal in a game that myself, or at least I thought, and many others thought um, was going to be a very low scoring affair. Seattle kind of eschewed the opportunity uh, for a field goal and instead went for on fourth and two same kind of a thing. I mean, they, they basically went with a, a, a quick snap and, and Geno Smith has a quick little shuffle pass here to uh, to Will Disley, winds up getting the first down. That, that is such a, clutch, such a clutch call because I think that it recognizes – a, just the strength of Geno Smith's intelligence, Will Disley and his ability to, to make big plays happen, but also is recognizing what's going on in the game as it's unfolding. The New York Giants were getting a great deal of pressure on the Seahawks. It didn't matter who was at the center position. The Giants were a formidable front. Um, and, and so, But one of the things that they do so very well is they get pressure and then they kind of struggle behind that. We talked about this, that their front was very formidable, but their linebackers were not quite as good. And so again, I think kudos to Shane Waldron. I, I, there's so many times where I focus in on personnel, but I think the play calling in this game and the preparation of Seattle's coaches, I thought really was a difference in this football game and allowed Seattle to get the victory. I want to talk about the preparation of number seven under center. And I think you've got to give Shane Waldron some credit there too. The offensive coordinator is helping him get there, but, there's so many different things that we could point out that have changed in Geno Smith's game that have helped him become a top five quarterback in the NFL right now. I think you and I would both agree the numbers, the film, everything he's playing like a top five quarterback, but I think really what has changed the game for him 
which really helped him take that next step in his maturation. You are playing against a team coached by Wink Martindale. You know he is going to be mixing in exotic blitzes. He's going to have guys lining up in weird places. There's going to be all kinds of different twists and loops and all kinds of different stuff up front. And you have to be incredibly prepared. You have to look at tendencies on film and try to figure out, hey, are they tipping a different type of blitz or whatever? And I know that the Giants got to Geno Smith a few times in this game. There were some missed blocks. There was a corner. Uh, Xavier McKinley came flying off the edge untouched. Geno didn't see him and got rocked. So there were a few times that he ended up getting blown away by the Giants' defense. But I thought in the second half what really changed is his command. You mentioned the pre-snap stuff yesterday. His command of the offense and the ability to change plays, to make checks with his receivers. Oh, they're in cover zero. Hey, Tyler Lockett, let's do a double move. You go. Stuff like that has really changed the game for Geno Smith. And what he's doing when he is under pressure, I didn't feel like Wink Martindale was as aggressive as we've normally seen him, especially in the second half. I didn't think the Giants were sending five, six guys at him. And I think Martindale had watched enough film to be like, this is not a quarterback that I can get away with doing that too much against. You look at the numbers, and this is from Pro Football Focus right now. Geno Smith is second in completion rate under pressure. He's fourth in yards per attempt, fifth in total yards, second in passer rating. Anytime he's under pressure, I mean, top five numbers in all those stats for a reason. And then even blitzing versus non-blitzing. When he's blitzed, he's second in completion rate at 70%. And he also is eighth in passer rating against the blitz. So you got to blitz very carefully against Geno, and I think that's the biggest game changer. Why are we even having the discussion at all about him being an MVP candidate? I think a huge part of it is his willingness to stare down the barrel when he's got a defender coming right at him. That third and 14 completion he had to Metcalf the other day for 15 yards, he got blasted after he threw that ball, but he hung in tough. He played with poise. He took the hit and delivered a perfect strike. That, to me, is the biggest difference in the maturation of Geno Smith. And that's why he's an MVP candidate. He is playing so much better under pressure than we ever saw him earlier in his career. Yeah, he he is playing a spectacular level, Corbin. I mean, I, I was going to talk about the centers here, but I got to call an audible just the way that Geno Smith has here and kind of, again, echo the sentiments that you're just talking about. I, I love the fact that you just mentioned the, the play in which Zach McKinley came in and got a sack. Um, I... What I love about it is the fact that, hey, sometimes the defense is going to make big plays. I love, win. The, yep. I, I love the hustle that, that Geno Smith showed right after that play. He got sacked. The CX are going to have to punt the football. Geno Smith sprinted towards the sideline after that play. Now, what that says to your teammates is, hey, Good job, defense. Well done. You got us on that one. I'm not going to sit here and mope. I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to lay on the ground. I'm going to get back over there. I'm going to talk with my coaches, with the other quarterbacks on my team, and I'm going to try to figure out what's going to work best next time. That, to me, is what I've seen from Geno Smith. You talked about the maturation, the poise. He has been remarkable in that way. That had been one of the things I was the most concerned about. I had not seen that from Geno Smith. That Not at West Virginia, not in his multiple stops in the NFL prior to that. You know, my wife owns a horse. This is her thing. She loves horses. And when you watch horses on a track, a lot of times you see horses with kind of the blinders on when they're actually at the racetrack. They, you don't want that horse. Look at the other horses around them. You want them staring straight towards the finish line. It feels like Geno Smith right now has blinders under his eyes. He is not seeing the pass rush in front of him 
the way that some maybe shorter quarterbacks might sometimes focus in on the pass rush. Geno Smith is looking downfield every single time. His ability to duck and dip and maneuver around the pressure, still keep his eyes downfield, and as you said, Corbin, correctly, accurately throw the football has been absolutely spectacular. He is the biggest reason. I, again, I mentioned Shane Waldron before, but Geno Smith is the biggest reason why this offense has been humming. It's been humming all season long. Let's switch gears now to defense. Cause I could talk about Geno. That's how well he's playing. I could talk about Geno for 40 minutes, every single episode right now with the way that he's playing. But there's another player on defense that I feel like I could gush about that way. And you look at the turnaround, the last three games, they made a switch up front a game or two before then. Daryl Taylor gets benched. He was struggling the first three weeks. And Seattle initially put Daryl Johnson in as the starter to replace him. Johnson gets hurt, and now we have to throw Boye Mafe into the lineup. And I don't think this is a hot take, but some of our listeners might view it as a hot take. I think that Boye Mafe has been the most underappreciated contributor in this defensive resurgence for the Seahawks. And I'm basing that off of the last couple of games, but particularly on Sunday. It felt like every time the Giants tried to run at number 53, he was setting a hard edge. I actually posted a play on Twitter on this, and it's funny because he ends up getting knocked back several yards. But you have to watch the play from start to finish to respect how well he played this one. There was a pulling guard coming from the other side trying to kick him out. He got low, fired his hands into the guard as he was coming at him, and he stood him up. Saquon Barkley decided to cut back immediately when he saw that. He's got his blocker in front of him, stood up. like He's like, I'm not running there. And he ends up getting gobbled up by Jordan Brooks. Now, right after that, the guard recovered and knocked Mafe back a couple steps, but it didn't matter. Barkley's on the ground for a one-yard loss. And that is how you set the edge. And this kid has been doing it time and time again. Who would have thought that he would be doing it either? This was not what he was known for at Minnesota. Run defense was the biggest question mark for him coming into the NFL, at least for most scouts. And he is doing a phenomenal job setting the edge. He's making plays. And then he had a sack in this game. They didn't block him for whatever reason, but he shoots into the backfield, had a couple other pressures. We are watching this kid just develop into a – quality starter right in front of our eyes way earlier than anybody could have anticipated and he's one of the six rookies right now that are making an impact for the Seahawks that are starting and Mafe is doing a fantastic job I just feel like with the turnaround on defense especially the run defense 53 and he's be getting a lot more attention as part of that because he has been crucial setting the edge he really has. And I love that you're focusing on setting the edge because you're right. He had the sack. You know, he wasn't blocked. He, he showed his burst um, and, and he closed on the quarterback, got an easy sack. But it has been his ability in run defense, his strength, his tenacity, his awareness that really has been the kind of the story here. And you are absolutely correct. At least from this scout, I did not see that type of alertness to the I run. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That that alertness to the run um, previously at Minnesota. You know, he played mostly in a, in a 4-3 throughout his time. But still, he you, you wouldn't expect that type of a quick transition here. It's been very impressive. But when you initially started talking about Boye Mafe and, and just saying what an underrated player he has been on Seattle's defense. I thought that you were going to go to Seattle's number 26 in the way that he was so critical in helping the Seahawks slow down the Giants number 26. And of course, that being Saquon Barkley for the Giants and Ryan Neal 
for the Seahawks. You know, we all know that uh, you know, the Seahawks had adjusted their defense, hoping to get Jamal Adams that many more playmaking opportunities. And obviously, we all wish Jamal Adams well in his recovery. But Ryan Neal has been everything that the Seahawks could have hoped that Jamal Adams would have been, whether it be in, in terms of at the line of scrimmage, whether it be in making plays in coverage. He's been absolutely spectacular. And there, there, there are highlight real play, highlight real worthy plays that they could put on social media to kind of show what Ryan Neal is doing. I love that there's also plays where he's just just getting the you know his fingertips basically on the shoestrings of the the runner or receiver and being able to trip them up. It, it doesn't matter. He is getting them down. Um, and, and we're seeing it so consistently. Um, so to me, I think that Ryan Neal is right there with Boye Mafe. And, and Neal has got some attention. So I think that your point about Boye Mafe being the most underrated of Seattle's contributors is a very good one. But I think that Ryan Neal is right there with Boye Mafe. And there's not a lot of national pundits who are saying anything about Ryan Neal or Boye Mafe. And I think that they should be focusing their attention because both of them have played a critical role in, in Seattle's defensive resurgence over this three-game winning streak. If you could bottle up the way Ryan Neal played the last two games, he's an all-pro. Yeah. I'm not – I don't think I'm exaggerating saying – I mean, he had four pass breakups and an interception against the Chargers. And then this week had six tackles, two tackles for a loss. He tripped up Barkley, as you mentioned, for a three-yard loss on a third-down screen. He had two third-down stops. The first one where he tackled – I believe the receiver was actually Marcus Johnson, who was briefly with the Seahawks early in his career – he stonewalled him one yard short of the first down marker. So he's not just making tackles. He's making critical third down stops. He's getting his hands on the football. I mean, he has been spectacular the last two weeks. And it's making it that they're not missing Jamal Adams. And you hate saying that because Jamal Adams is a special player. But from Seattle's perspective, again, another good problem to have that you have a quality starter in Ryan Neal that can step in and make the plays flying all over the field that he is real quick. Close off our Tell the Truth Tuesday thoughts here on special teams. Speaking of postseason accolades, I think another player that is starting to get some waves here a little bit, and Pete Carroll's name dropped him a few times uh, unprompted for a reason, but I know Will Disley was the superstar of special teams the other day, forcing a fumble, recovering a fumble, but the one he forced, guess who recovered it? Number 35, Joey Blunt. I think Joey Blunt might be pushing I know the Pro Bowl is no longer going to be an actual game, but they're still going to be voting for Pro Bowlers. I think he has a strong argument to be a Pro Bowler as a specialist. I swear every single kickoff and punt that he is right there either making a tackle or he's recovering a fumble or he's blowing up a blocker so somebody else can make a tackle. I mean, he is right around the ball every single time. And the Seahawks seem to think that he might have a future playing some safety for him too. I mean, this kid has been one of their patented undrafted steals and he's really fun to watch on special teams. No, he, he really is. I mean, that's, you know, you might remember you know, in the preseason, I mean, he was the guy that I thought might be the surprise player to make Seattle's initial 53. Uh, yeah. It was it was almost strictly because of what I saw on special teams because what he's done in the regular season, that's what I was seeing in the preseason as well. It's like, who the hell is this number 35 guy that is just absolutely <laughs> flying down the field game after game, play after play? And, and so just knowing that, or at least anticipating that this was going to be a young team that may struggle to find victories, I thought, 
thought, hey, ding dong, pick out some players who are young and who are hungry. They kind of fit in with that Pete Carroll mentality. That's why I kind of gambled on Joey Blunt, and he has obviously made me and, and the Seahawks look very, very smart in doing so. And I love that also that you mentioned the fact that, the, that Pete Carroll has name dropped him. He talked about how he wants to get Joey Blunt some time on the field on defense as well. I, I think that's part of the reason why Ryan Neal is playing so well is because he knows he's got Joey Blunt hot on his heels. Why Quandre Diggs has to continue to play well because, again, he's got Joey Blunt hot on his heels. And then also with Sean Desai, knowing the way that the Seahawks have talked about wanting to get three safeties on the field, would not be surprised at all to see Joey Blunt be able to carve out some type of third safety type of role, especially since we haven't seen as much from Josh Jones here in recent weeks. So maybe Joey Blunt, is that might be the way that he does get his way onto the field on defense as well. And then again, as you mentioned on special teams real quick, I think we have to acknowledge Jason Myers. The topsy-turvy odd your even year stuff it is an even year and uh you know jason myers has been absolutely spectacular as a kicker even getting a field goal partially blocked still coming through with the kicks that he did that is something that the Seahawks have to acknowledge as well yeah he was kicking the knuckleball there i don't know that i've seen very many of those go between the uprights and get above the crossbar uh yeah. so some of that's fortune uh, some of that is, well, it's just your year and it's an even year. So Jason Myers, of course, is going to be playing his very best and he's in a contract year at that. So Seahawks now are going to have some interesting decisions they have to make there after the season if he continues to kick this well for the remainder of the 2022 campaign. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Check out Locked on Seahawks and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and streaming five days a week on YouTube. Coming up tomorrow, it's matchup Wednesday. Feels like the Cardinals and Seahawks just played, so maybe we'll have some similar matchups, but I know there's one new one that we will be talking about. Nuke Hopkins going up against Tariq Woolen. I cannot wait. You don't want to miss tomorrow's episode as we break down those matchups and much more. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.